Hi, I'm Shreen Patek, and you're listening to Making Marketing by Digiday. Every week, I talk to executives who are changing the playbook for the industry one decision at a time. We're back on the DTC beat, and this week, I'm all about men's activewear. My guest today is Nate Checkets, who back in 2014 co-founded Roan, which started as online-only, has become a brick-and-mortar success story, as well as a success story in a lot of different mediums. Hi, Nate. Hi, it's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Let's go all the way back. Okay. Talk to me about who you are. What exactly is men's active wear? Why go into men's active wear? What was the story there? Wow, it's such a big question to wow. start with. I mean, Good. here we go. Really, you know, I grew up in, uh, I was always an athlete playing sports, you know, grew up in a big family, six kids. So, you know, there was lots of active wear flowing in and out of our house. So it's definitely a category that I know and understand when it comes to men's fashion. If I were to lean anywhere, it would be on the active side. They didn't call it active wear back then. No, it was shorts. It was just like workout clothing. I mean, I don't even know what you called it back then. It was everything that I would beg my mom to let me wear all the time, but usually didn't succeed in. And, uh, And the short story is I was working at the NFL and got a broad exposure to kind of all of the modern players. This is, you know, this is back in 2012. And really while I was there, I started to see kind of all the different brands and it felt like there was such a, such a hole in the men's offering. You know, you saw kind of all the traditional players that I grew up with, the the mass players, and they had such an even split between how they were selling to men's and women's. But then there was this new kind of growing women's offering priced at a premium to all of these mass folks that we grew up with, 200 focused female brands, more than 85% of their sales focused on women using premium fabrications, you know, predominantly focused on yoga. Um, so this and, is the rise of like the Lululemon aesthetic. Lululemon was really leading the charge. Right. And then you had all of these brands that were, that were certainly there um, kind of going after the same customer. And if you were to look at the men's side, you know, more than 85 plus percent of the sales focused on men at call it a 40% price premium to the Nike, Under Armour, Reebok, Adidas of the world. It was crickets. There was nobody. It was like you could find a triathlon brand or a cycling brand, but nobody kind of in this what we have called performance lifestyle, which we think is kind of the next big phase of of a man's closet. And it's this idea that today, the way guys are thinking about their closet has really condensed. So 10 years ago, you'd bucket your wear case into, here's what I'm allowed to wear at the gym. Here's what I can wear to work. Here's what I can wear to hang out with my friends. Here's what I can wear to, you know, coach my kid's soccer game on the weekends, whatever it is. And now most of those categories have collapsed into kind of a single category, Hmm. which is what we call performance lifestyle. And uh, that's really what we aim to fill. You know, no, we don't do formal, um, but we think we can kind of satisfy 80% of a guy's closet today because the categories have collapsed and because we think you can take best-in-class performance fabrics, put them in traditional kind of classic silhouettes, and uh, and it's really, really powerful. So you were, so this is, I mean, this is now, this is sort of like what the company is now and your vision now. When you were starting, I'm sure it wasn't that clear. You knew no. that there was a gap. You sort of saw what was going on with women's, thought, wait a minute, like I'm a man who has been clearly in and around sports basically my whole life. There's yep. something here. How did you decide to even start? Well, I think there was, there was one other, I, two other major trends that I would point to. The first is that, there was this growth of digitally native brands in everything. You know, you're kind of seeing the the Dollar Shave Club of the world, the Warby Parker, uh, and we said, hey, there's 
you know, we love this category. There's not very much in this category. And we want to, um, we want to approach this in kind of this new digitally native retail concept. And then the other kind of third major trend is some, you know, something that we've already talked a little bit about, but health and wellness. You know, I didn't anticipate in the next 50 years, are people going to be less focused on health and wellness? As we discover more about our body, the way it works, nutrition, active lifestyles, this is a category that's going to become more and more relevant. And so kind of for all those reasons, it, was, it felt like there was enough there to start to lean into it. And yeah, mm-hmm. we've, we've uncovered a lot as we've spent the last five years trying to understand our customer. Did you start with one product and why did you pick it? We didn't start with one product. Man alive, I wish we would have started with one product. I see these companies now, I'm like, that's so brilliant. Why didn't we do that? Um, We felt like we needed to give, you know, apparel's different than a lot of other categories. We felt like we needed to have enough of an offering for people to sink their teeth into. Hmm. We didn't want to be a product company. We didn't want to just be a short business. We wanted to build a brand. And I have always been an entrepreneur. My whole life, really, you know, outside of call it a year and a half at the National Football League, I was always doing a startup of some kind, you know, whether that startup was a lemonade stand on at the end of my parents' street to I built a summer camp for kids. That was my summer job. That camp ran for eight years. Um, I started a mobile software business in college that, you know, the patents ended up being acquired by the 49ers. So I've always done something entrepreneurial. And, you know, this just felt like I, I wanted to get back to that. And I remember being on a train going into New York, working at the National Football League, and I wrote down, you know, I was miserable working at the NFL, which feels weird. <laughs> like, why are you? Know, There's all these such, people listening being like, this dude. Yeah, this guy's the worst. <laughs> and, and that's how I felt. I felt guilty feeling that way. Um, but I remember trying to answer that question for myself, and I remember writing in my journal that I always keep on me, I want to build a brand that matters. And so, you know, to get back to your very simple question, which you asked is, you know, did you start with one product or multiple products? We kind of felt like we needed enough products to say, we aren't just a product business, we're a brand and we're building great products, multiple. Um, So there's pluses and minuses, but, you know, it definitely had more complexity to start. We had five products to to launch. That's really interesting too, right? Like I'm going to ask you to take off kind of your, your, you know, co-founder of a brand hat for a minute, but because this idea of this like hero product has almost reached like mythical proportions for no especially for DNVB DTC whatever you want yep. to call them. I mean, every I was just looking at sort of the news recently, and you know you've got people who are starting with let's take sheets. So Brooklyn and starts with sheets, does a yep. great job selling sheets, has really nice sheets, and then realizes they have to sell their things. You've right. seen you know even bigger stories with places like Casper with mattresses, but the idea that you start with one and then look to stretch that into adjacent categories has almost become a little bit of a playbook. Yeah. And I, and I think it wasn't as fully proved out when we launched as it is today. In hindsight, I think there's a lot of advantages in doing that. And let me try and talk about why I think that is. You know, when we launched having five products, it was harder for us to kind of try and tell five stories at once. If you have one product, think about that from a supply chain standpoint. Think about just saying, how do we simplify the supply chain? How do we make it faster? How do we drive down cost while also driving up quality? For our marketing team and our performance marketing team, how do we get into every possible area of spend from an acquisition standpoint to acquire those customers efficiently? And we get to tell one story. So mm-hmm. I, if, if I talk to entrepreneurs today, 
I re-emphasize this playbook because it works. You know, the thing that you have to be careful of as you start to grow is that you don't become known for your product, but the product is a a reflection of the brand. What Casper did so well relative to their other competitive set is they built a great mattress, but the mattress was a reflection of a lifestyle that they were trying to drive home. And now Casper gets to own an entire room in your house. How great is that? So, you know, pretty soon they're going to be making, I don't know, toothpaste for crying out loud. Sure. But Casper, but that's, that's, and this is a great sort of tangent to go down on because again, you encapsulate kind of the opposite of what these people are now doing. But there's also risks to having just one product. The big risk being that even if your one product is great, you haven't kind of proved yourself in other products. Even if those products are super adjacent. Like sometimes I think about, I'm like, okay, you've got sheets. Of course you're going to make pillowcases. Like this seems like a no-brainer. I think we were talking to people who are making sort of dog beds because they're making sofas at Burrow. So this all makes sense, but it kind of puts a lot of question marks, doesn't it, to the stretchability of the business model. Like, always great at luggage. Are they going to be just as great at travel-sized toiletries? We don't know. And this isn't a knock on away. It's just you have no idea. And as a co-founder, you're sort of sitting there going, working with your partners and going, okay, are you sure we should do this or should we do something else? Well, I also think it's funny because you can take it to such an extreme, right? Like, you know, in in the example that you were just giving, you know, are, is there going to be an airline, which I've heard them say, and <laughs> we're going to we're going to book your travel for you, and so it starts to become, you know, it starts to grow into uh, how big can you really go? And I I get having a big vision, but for us, we really wanted to focus on we want to be the absolute best men's brand in your closet, the go to t shirt, the go to short. And for us, that was narrow enough, and there was such little competition in our space that we felt like we could really go and own that. Mm-hmm. And um, But it is. It's tricky. It's tricky. And I think every entrepreneur, every company needs to go through this. Think about how you scale. It's, it's similar to a restaurant. You know, Going from one restaurant to even two restaurants can be incredibly complex from a supply chain, a quality standpoint. You really have to kind of you know, answer it on a case-by-case basis. And that's and that's even an extreme. I mean, th- in this case, I would point it to being more like you're making sushi, so you'll also make kind of fish fry. Yeah. Because the ingredients are kind of the same, but they're yeah. completely different cuisines. Yeah. But you must have stretched. I mean, you started with five. You've obviously got far more now. Yep. Walk me through kind of the last, let's say, about three to four years of growth and what, what exactly that's looked like for you. Yeah. I mean, as we started, none of us came from apparel. None of us came. I was going to say that in all that the lemonade stand, the summer camp. No you fashion. went to fashion. There person. was there was no fashion. Uh, you know, our, I would say our first hire and our chief product officer kind of grew up in the world of fashion. Thank goodness. Uh, but so we've been able to save a lot ourselves from a lot of lessons there. But the world of fashion and retail was being reinvented as we were launching and growing, and you know the kind of way of reaching the customer. So that's been kind of this fun challenge to grow and change along with it. But I always tell people that my very, very first hire, first official kind of full-time hire was to a performance marketer. It wasn't to somebody who did brick and mortar retail stores. It wasn't to a merchandiser. It wasn't to, you know, so the way we think about growing and evolving a business is very different than it's ever been for kind of a fashion retail brand. So how so? Because you mentioned earlier all this, you know, okay, you get into all these different acquisition channels, you start kind of playing around with the levers there, right? And that's where performance marketing really comes in. And I think that's really what separates sort of digitally native brands from others. I think that's the definition. And, you know, we can talk about definitions in a minute. But what did you do when it came to performance marketing with this sort of first big hire that you think really worked? And then talk to me about things that didn't work. Yeah. 
Gosh, it's a long list. <laughs> um, you know, I think I think it really starts with how you view the customer. You know, if you if you're a majority wholesale run business, you are counting on the wholesaler to communicate for you what your value proposition is, why you're better than someone else, why you know why they should buy your short pant versus somebody else's. And for us, we always wanted to have a relationship with the customer. We thought that was so important. The way we, you know, everything from photography to copy to, you know, kind of just the website, it was always about building a relationship long-term with the customer. And so I think it's become this misnomer where people talk about D to C brands, direct, you know, direct to consumer. It's like, that's the original business model. That's always been around. We didn't, you know, millennials didn't invent D to C, you know, the first person to do commerce invented D2C. It was like, I have a product. You're going to buy the product. Now we have a relationship. There's been this level of complexity that's been added over time. And now we're going back to this D2C. And what's enabled it is technology. Sure. And so to me, the big difference now are brands that have started in a digitally native environment versus a brick and mortar environment or a wholesale environment. So you have all these channels, but what's changed is the primary channel now is e-commerce. And the way you think about developing a relationship with a customer starts digitally for the most part, not, hey, they walk into the store, right. how are you, let me learn about your kids. So um, for us, from a performance marketing standpoint, we kind of always go back to how do we build, deepen, develop a relationship with the end customer. But also there's, there were benefits. So yes, okay, technology enabled essentially us to go back to like our forefathers' scale. roots, right? Yep. And be like, okay, we can just sell. good word. Forefathers. Um, but okay, we could build, we now have the ability. And honestly, thanks to things like Shopify and all of those, that ecosystem, it's never been easier to at least start No question. Right? So I could start something today and just say, okay, I'm going to sell phone cases. I don't know why I just said phone cases, but I'm going to sell some phone cases. You'd be um, the only one. Yeah. That's great. It's such a non-competitive market. Right, let's do amazing. it. amazing. Um, but there's also benefits to having wholesale relationships. There's all these scale benefits. Because we talk a lot over here about this, like, I don't know, this might be the wrong number. We call it sort of the $100 million gap. And mm -hmm. you can get from like point A to point B, no problem on your own. And then all of these brands kind of fall into this like how do we get beyond this? And a lot of founders I speak to get to this point that they say, we can no longer do this at the scale, if we want to build a scaled company on our own. And we need to sort of have wholesale relationships. We need to talk to brick. And you guys have done kind of, you have brick and mortar presence. You do have, I mean, you sort of sell in a lot of different places that aren't necessarily your own. How do you balance the two, especially if the whole idea is like, we want to keep that direct relationship with our customer? Yeah, well, I mean, it's certainly the big question because I, I think you're completely right. There are now it's easier than ever before to build a five, ten million dollar brand. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's hard, but it's easier than it's ever ever been to scale past that. You know, I think I think that's incredibly complex, and because there's so much micro competition, and what's uh, micro competition? Meaning, you know, before it was you have to get niche. You have to you have to focus on a specific segment of the market. Now, because it's easier to start, every single segment there's somebody kind of already there. Like playing. my phone cases. Like your well, yes. <laughs> uh, let's take that as your phone cases, right? But like, let's say that you say I want to make phone cases targeted for this specific, you know, eighteen year olds that live in Alabama and are huge fans of Crimson Tide. All right, that's pretty narrow guarantee somebody's already doing that, 
right? So how do you how do you exist and how do you break through the noise to build a scaled brand um, on a larger scale that you know before if you kind of broke through that initial glass ceiling, getting from 10 to 100 seemed like it was a lot easier because now you have wholesale relationships they can scale they can get you in front of a lot of people now you're just competing with everybody the big guys on the food chain all these small micro competitors and so in some ways it's more competitive than ever before to kind of get past that second glass ceiling and i think it's tricky we're just going to stop and take a very quick break before coming back to this conversation okay okay so we're talking about sort of this whatever it is 100 million dollars ceiling gap part that all these companies get to. How have you kind of approached kind of what happens for the brand as as it scales? And then coming back to my question on control, because I think a large part, I mean, sort of, I know founders like to call it kind of a relation with the customer, but to me, it's also just control. You guys started this company. You want to retain that brand messaging, that storytelling. You want to retain who you are. Right. And if you go and sell in Saks Fifth Avenue... And even if it'll do lots of good for your business and it'll put you among all these other really cool brands, you can't control how it's presented. You can't control what it says. And again, your customer then becomes the buyers at Saks, no longer your actual customer. Right. But you've still managed it. You have done both. We have. So, right. you know, we always tell people we're omni-channel. And, and I think there's a reason, I think there's good rationale for being omni-channel. You know, what wholesale can bring to you is that they can help you reach a brick-and-mortar customer that you simply from a balance sheet can't reach otherwise. You know, it's it's expensive to go and open stores. And guess what? Most people, the majority of clothing is still bought in a physical environment. I know for millennials and digital customers, are like, that blows your mind. I mean, I was having a conversation with Neil Blumenthal at Warby Parker. I was like, you've opened 100 retail stores. Why did you do that? He's like, well, guess what? 85% of eyewear is still purchased in person. And he's like, so we get all this credit for being, you know, this incredible millennial direct-to-consumer brand. But the reality is, is we're missing the biggest part of the audience if we don't open retail stores. Clothing is still the same way. The majority of clothing is still purchased in person. So if you don't have the ability to open retail stores, not even, let, let's say that you have the finances to be able to do that. And there's brands that have come out and said, we're a new brand and we're going to open 60 retail stores. And they have failed really, really quickly and had to back out of leases because it takes a while for your brand to get some level of notoriety for people to want to walk into a physical mm -hmm. environment. So that physical environment is important. Wholesale is important. But for me, I've always said I want it to be a minority of our business because, and, and we're willing to grow maybe a little bit slower as a result of that to let it catch up. I mean, granted, we've grown triple digits every single year, but like we wanted to control the growth a little bit so that now we know where our customer is. We know the markets that they're playing in. It's easier for us to select where we want to open our own brick and mortar and the channels can kind of support each other versus, you know, if wholesale becomes, in my mind, more than 50% of your business, that's the tail wagging the dog. And that's a that's a generalization, but I think that that's a it's just a dangerous place to start playing. You could have mentioned, you know, and being okay with growing slowly or a little slower than you could by making this decision. One thing, you know, that we've had a lot of actually founders on this podcast talk about before is just the incredible pressure because the DTC space is so buzzy and hot yeah. and competitive. There is money flowing in. There are mm -hmm. investors really give, willing to give good companies a lot of money. And we've had people say, you know, they've turned down money because they felt like that would 
it's just not what they wanted because they felt like so many, so much of that would come with an expectation to grow faster than they were willing to grow at that stage. Is that is that common? And where do you see kind of that shaking out? Because wherever, look, wherever, whichever industry has a ton of money flowing in. I mean, there's DTC brand, DTC companies that are doing DTC plants now. There's DTC vitamins for dogs. And again, those are all might be great ideas. But at some point, it does start feeling it's really easy to start a business, to our point earlier. There is money. There's investors willing to put money in it. And, you know, even if Facebook acquisition costs and everything are going up, they're not that much more that you can you can build a brand. Is this a bubble? Does this start sort of do we start seeing a shakeout overall in the DNVB space? Yeah, I think what's happened is a lot of technology money has you know, have been burned over the last 10, 15 years. It's a much more binary space. If it wins, it wins so big. And you're, you know, you're seeing return profiles in like the thousands, which is just unbelievable. Or, you know, massive amounts of money being lost. You know, a company will raise $800 million and go bankrupt. Um, In the consumer kind of D2C landscape, that's far less the case. Mm. You know, in the world of venture capital, they will call it, you know, singles, doubles, triples, almost obnoxiously. You're like, oh, you know, it's a nice, safer player. You're like, we're growing 150%. <laughs> Could you just give us a high five today? Um, but the truth is, is that technology money in an effort to balance out venture portfolios started, started coming into consumer, you know, following a similar playbook saying, hey, unless you're, unless you're growing 100 plus percent, you know, we're not even going to pay attention to you and the portfolio. And yeah, I think venture in some ways kills as many businesses as it helps support. It's tricky. You really have to kind of have a playbook. You have to have a plan. You have to stick to it. And I applaud entrepreneurs that don't take money and, and try to try to stay the course. But if you look at where the big success stories and kind of the, and we talk about the buzziness has been, you know, any of the companies that we've mentioned on this podcast have raised a, an incredible amount of money. And part of that is to rise above the noise and break through that next glass ceiling. I wouldn't say it's a prerequisite, but it's it's pretty close. I mean, in order to get past a certain level of scale, you need to raise some capital. And that most of that money will probably be spent on doing a ton more marketing, right? Doing a lot more. No question. Action. But <laughs> there aren't that many success stories, are there? Like when you really start, yes, these companies that are built are amazing. But the fact is that nobody knows their financials because most of them aren't public, right? Yep. So. But really, I would say maybe like the biggest success story that like as a reporter, you know, you can point to is, okay, Dollar Shave Fuzz sold, had a specific kind of number attached to it, really big number considering what sort of they'd put into it. And that was a pretty long time ago. But since then, you've, there's been buzziness about IPOs, hasn't quite panned out. There have been, to your point, as many businesses killed. There's like a graveyard of brands that I've seen on Instagram that no longer exist. I mean, is... Are there that many successes or, and how much of that is how much of this is noise? Because there is a lot of noise in this space. I think there's a lot of noise. I mean, I think I think that from a longevity standpoint, it, it's always kind of interesting to watch how this plays out. There just aren't very many brands in general, both both pre kind of digitally native and and now today that last for a long time. Jeff Bezos said this interesting thing about it, Amazon. He said, Amazon will fail. Our job is to put off the failure for as long as possible. And, you know, to us... Nice like and the, cheerful. Right. To, to half our lives are on Amazon now. That sounds impossible. How could Amazon ever fail? You use it for everything that you buy. You know, you talk to it in your kitchen. You, you know, like, 
Amazon failing, but the truth is, is many businesses don't last that long. And so you really have to make conscious decisions. It has to be a very conscious decision. And it is tricky because we live in an environment where growth is heavily rewarded. And so you feel that constant pressure to just, you know, grow at all costs. Well, guess what? All costs means that you might die. So we've been, we've been careful. You know, we've, we try not to, we have, especially in our early days, we had large periods of time where we were completely sold out of inventory. And we just had to be okay with that um, because inventory kills businesses, especially in this arena, more than anything else. So when you say you to be okay with it, you chose to make what decision? Not kind of- We chose to not over, 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 over buy, okay. overproduce okay. Um, because we never wanted to be in a situation where we were making more than we could, we could sell. And you don't want a discount. And we absolutely did not want to be be out there discounting. Yeah. So you never want to get into that. Um, let's talk a little bit about the nitty gritty of sort of acquisition. Um, just cause it's interesting hear yeah. a lot about how expensive to acquire people. I mean, we hear it, you know, we, we try to acquire customers to like subscribe to us and it's pretty, it's getting expensive and yeah. the cost sort of the cost to acquire per customer keeps rising. Certain platforms are getting more expensive. All this is known. What are you trying to mitigate or even just say, like, let's try some, a new way to acquire customers? What's new for you? Well, I, you know, I think it's all the this, this standard stuff in terms of kind of, you know, trying lots of different things. We have a certain percentage of our budget that is focused on kind of tried and true. We know what it costs. It's expensive. Facebook, Google, Instagram, it's all gotten expensive. But we at least know what the metrics are and they're really dialed in, you know, kind of from a dashboard standpoint. And they still work. And they still work. And they still work. Expensive, but they still work. And then we have a portion of our budget that, you know, is kind of for experimental, trying interesting things. Um, you know, certainly retail is a part of that because if you look at retail just as a straight acquisition channel, you know, there are some metrics that would basically support we could we should be doing retail much more aggressively than we're doing it. Today. Yeah, well, going back to Neil, I mean, he's probably finding that yeah. retail is a better like acquisition. The channel, absolute right? like it's a profitable acquisition channel. You're making money as you're acquiring customers, um, which in the digital front is like impossible to do. Uh, and uh, you know, but. But a different tactic, which I'd love to talk about, which I think, you know, very few people are talking about, is we are trying to get much better about segmenting and cohorting our customer base. Hmm. You know, we have a customer who in the last six months has spent $20,000 buying clothes. And so our, our head of data brought this to me. He's like, hey, uh, I just wanted to point this out. You know, <laughs> this, this isn't necessarily common. We have customers who spend, you know, five, ten thousand $10,000. But, you know, $20,000 in six months, is, what is going on with just this customer? a really I was like, active person. I was like, uh, you couldn't possibly wear that much clothing. Like, give me the analysis on how many pants. And, and I was like, is he, is he selling it online? Because we have, we have people who will resell our products at a higher price in different platforms to try and reach customers. Absolutely not. We found, you know, found out who this guy is very well-to-do person, you know, is successful. He's buying it and just giving it to people because he loves the product so much. So we reach out and he's like, I absolutely, I'm obsessed with your product. Tell everybody I know about it. Um, you know, he's so busy. He's not going to like go out of his way to reach out and tell us how much he loves us. Um, so how much would we spend to go and acquire that customer? Right? right. So when you start thinking but that's about that's a one-off. The, so I'm I'm just using it as an extreme example. But like right. let's let's take the people who are going to spend twenty five hundred dollars a year with us, which is there's, pretty common. Yeah, there's right. a, there's enough people in that cohort that you can kind of say, should we be marketing to that person differently? You know, than we are to the person who's going to spend two hundred fifty dollars a year with us. Still mm-hmm. valuable customer, 
love, love both of them, but the way we market them might be very, very different. The number of emails that we send, the level of service and engagement might change slightly in terms of kind of high touch. So thinking about how we market and acquire the customer shouldn't just be, hey, here's our CAC or here's our CAC to LTV ratio. It's, hey, there's thousands and thousands of cohorts in here and how might they be influenced by this message or this email or you know this Instagram ad and how can we get really, really dialed in to say we might spend $300 to go and acquire this customer because we know that the lifetime value is so much higher. So getting into kind of the data science piece of it is has been really, really fun and something that we've spent a lot of time on over the last three months. That's and I amazing. think most consumer companies aren't even scratching the surface on. But and also going back to right back to the beginning of our conversation, all of this is possible because you are selling a, the majority of your product yourselves. Yeah, no question. Because you wouldn't we, have this data anyway. We have the data. Yeah. You wouldn't have it if you said... And you, but you you might even sell more if you went on Amazon and just sold your stuff there. You know, there's, I, I think there's no question that the data piece that we have is, you know, that control piece that we were talking about earlier unlocks a lot of things for us. Um, and, you know, but we even have more data on the wholesale side. Like we know sell-through numbers in much more real time than a retailer would 10 years ago. Hmm. Um, just my last question, which is really a little bit more of a existential one, but, you know, we talked a lot about kind of growing smartly, not just growing quickly. Um, so what what does kind of growth look like for you guys over, say, the next even year? I was yeah. going to say five, but I feel like it's different. It's for, so for, long. Know, five years is so long. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, just over a year. What What is the goal? Uh, well, I mean, actually, for us, the goal is to double again. Um, and it's probably... Maybe the last time we'll be able to do that, uh, but we're just we just keep finding as we grow, we keep finding new ways to grow, and that's the exciting thing for us. It shows us that our category is really big, and there's lots and lots of opportunity. Um, but we also, um, you know, as we've leaned into brick and mortar, there's a channel there that we can kind of see some some growth opportunities into. Our wholesale business is growing. Our online business is growing. Like right now, everything. Malls are back. <laughs> so yeah, it's a lot going I mean, on. apparently they're back. I don't know how long that lasts, but um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. Amazing, Nate. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. And that's all for today's episode of Making Marketing a Show by Digiday. Thank you for listening. Our producer, of course, is Pierre BNMA. If you like the show, please head to your iTunes store, search for a show, Making Marketing, and leave us a review. It helps new listeners find us. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>